Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Good morning, Word of Lifers, in-personers and onlineers. Hold on to the lifeline. All right. Well, this morning, uh, I want to preach on me, a sinner. Uh, So let's get started. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Now, I... I'd love to go right into the parable, but I can't because I'm afraid that you'll get it wrong. Um, The parable, as you know, is about two men who went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector, and that's where you're in danger of getting it wrong. We have come to have certain opinions about Pharisees and tax collectors that have built up over times and millions and billions of sermons. Uh, We've been conditioned to think of the Pharisees as the bad guys because, you know, for the most part, they didn't get along with Jesus. And We think of the tax collectors as the good guys or at least cool sinners. You know, they're cool sinners. Yeah, you know, they're, they got their whiskey and their cigar and and Jesus hangs out with them. So we think of them that way. Pharisees, completely bad guys. Tax collectors, if not, if not good guys, at least cool sinners that kind of people you'd like to hang out with. And that's getting it all wrong. That's just getting it all wrong. So let's start. We've got to get these people in their their proper perspective. We We have to have a proper perspective on both the Pharisees and the tax collectors. Let's start with the tax collectors. Tax collectors, not cool sinners. They were opportunists, engaged in extortion from their own people. There's nothing cool about that. Um, Tax collectors, they show up 24 times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're not mentioned in John, but in the synoptic gospels, they show up two dozen times. So they have a prominent role. Uh, one, One of Jesus' disciples had been a tax collector, Matthew. Well, let's, okay, let's talk about these tax collectors. The Roman Empire, the Romans, they wanted to extract as much taxation as possible from the lands they had invaded, conquered, occupied, colonized. Yes, you know, that's the way of empire. They, they want to extract as much wealth out of those regions as they could. And you understand they had invaded, conquered, occupied, colonized Judea. But over many, many decades, the Romans had learned that it's best 
to leave the messy business of actually collecting the taxes to the local people. I mean, they are, the Romans are already hated and they may not know the customs, the culture, even the language. And so they found it was better to work with collaborators among the local population who were willing for a handsome profit to engage in this business of collecting the taxes that are going to go to Rome. So who do they find? They find people who are willing to compromise their integrity, their, certainly their religion. They find people who are willing to really engage in kind of a very disreputable occupation. And the way it worked was this. You would simply bid. You would say, I can, I can, I can get X amount of dollars from tax revenue from this town, this village, this region, however it worked. And it, and it goes to the highest bidder. So you say, I, I, can, I can bring in, in $800,000 uh, tax revenue from this town. And that's a high bid. And the Roman government says, great, it's yours. You have this tax commission. And now they didn't care how much you actually collected as long as you delivered that flat fee that you had agreed upon. And they certainly didn't care how you went about doing the collecting of the taxes. So who were these tax collectors? Well, they were, they were collaborators, yes, with, with the enemy. That's the way the Jewish people would have thought about it. But who became tax collectors? They weren't accountants. These were tough, violent, dangerous men who became the tax collectors. They were, think of it like organized crime. Think of it like mob. They're more like that. They were not cool sinners. They were not people you wanted to hang out with. They would be among, they were, they were among the most ostracized because they were among the most feared because of their violent tactics they would employ in extracting the taxes. Um, so tax collectors, not cool sinners, certainly not good guys. And this is the tax man in the parable. And let's just also say that he is this particular tax collector in the parable. He is what the Pharisee is not. In other words, the tax collector is a crook, a cheat and a womanizer. Along with everything else that goes along with what he does as a tax collector. Uh, Robert Capon gives us a colorful description of the tax collector. He's a mafia-style enforcer working for the Roman government on a nifty franchise that lets him collect from his fellow Jews, mind you, from the people Romans might have trouble finding, but whose whereabouts he knows and whose language he speaks, all the money he can bleed out of them. He's a fat cat who rides in a stretch limo, drinks nothing but Chevis Regal, and never shows up at a party without at least two $500 a night call girls in tow. All right, that's our tax collector. What about um, the Pharisees? Okay, well, the Pharisees, I've talked about this before, but we really have to get this straight. The Pharisees, uh, th this was a religious social movement that began about 160 years before Christ. And it began like this. It was uh, during the time that 
Israel was under the domination of the Seleucid Empire. This is why well, I was going to sound like a history teacher here. It's boring, I know. Hang in there. After, after the death of Alexander the Great and the fragmentation of the empire of Alexander the Great, it went to various generals. And, and one of those, they became known as the Seleucid. They're, they're kind of Greeks and Syrians kind of mixed together. And they're ruling over Israel, the Jewish people in Judea. And um, there arose a monstrous king. That's what he's called. It. He's a monstrous king. Antiochus Epiphanes. And he, he was fed up with the Jews and he just decided we're going to make them become Greek. We call it a forced Hellenization program. That sounds you know, nice and clinical, but it's very brutal. And they tried to prevent the Jewish people from circumcising their sons. Tried to force them to eat pork. Tried them to, to take the Sabbath away from them. In other words, he's just determined to make them not Jewish. And there arose this resistance movement. They called themselves the separatists because they're saying, we're gonna, no, we're not going to go down that road. We're going to stay separate. They're going to stay separate. And we're going to resist that. And like their, their theme scripture, it's, it's repeatedly out throughout the Bible. Uh, you shall be holy. For the Lord your God is holy. And holy means separate. And the word Pharisee means separate. That's where that came from. These are good guys. These are good guys. They're saying, no, we're chosen by God. We're a peculiar people. We're chosen by God. We, we have a covenant with God. We've got, we've got to remain true to our covenant. This is good stuff. What happens, it begins to go wrong. Starts out good. By the time we get to Jesus, it's starting to go off the rails because they became the morality police and began to be poisoned by their own self-righteousness. Nevertheless, um, Jesus has a closer affinity to the Pharisees than to any other religious social movement of the time. I mean, he's not like the Sadducees. He's certainly not a zealot. He's not an Essene. He's closest to the Pharisees, which is part of why I think Jesus is so hard on them. It's a little bit why, why I feel more liberty to really go after evangelicals. Because I come from that world. They're more or less my people. I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't feel good about, you know, going after Catholics or Orthodox or mainline, but these are my people. I, you know, it's like an in-family argument. So Jesus is probably, has the closest affinity to the Pharisees, but they're going off the rails, becoming the morality police. Okay, now for just a moment, let's focus on the particular Pharisee in the parable. And this is where you got to pay attention. Wake up, everybody, because you got to get this. The first thing we need to admit is that most of us would regard him as a good man. Don't, don't let him just enter the story as sort of a cliche villain. Most of us would regard him as a good man. Um, I mean, he's, he's not like the tax guy. He's not a crook. He's not a cheat. He's not a womanizer. He's a faithful family man making an honest living. And besides all of that, he's a man of faith who really wants to live his faith. He's rigorous with his faith. 
He fasts. He tithes for crying out loud. He's the kind of guy you want in your church. You can build a church with these kind of people. Think of him like that. If we make the mistake of thinking this parable is about a good guy and a bad guy, it's not. But if we make the mistake of thinking this is a parable about a good guy and a bad guy, it's the Pharisee who's the good guy, for sure. Okay, now, now, maybe with that long introduction on who these people are, let's look at the parable. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. All right, so two men are praying in the temple. And let's get this straight. They're both sinners because we're all sinners, right? Two men are praying and they're both sinners. But there is a difference. The difference primarily is the Pharisee is so aware of the presence of the tax collector that he has no awareness of himself truly. The, the presence of the tax collector who is a sinner, for sure. I mean, if we were just looking, if we were to presume to be the judge, we should not do this. But if we were to presume to be the judge, and just look at these two men objectively, we'd say, okay, they're both sinners, but that, that guy over there who's extorting a violent man living a dishonest life, we, that's, a, that's, a, that's a real sinner right there. But that's not the difference that God is interested in. The real difference is when the Pharisee is in the temple, he's so aware of the tax collector that the tax collector's sins are really at the heart of his praying. And it becomes his foundation for his self-assurance of being righteous. Because he, he falls into the devil's game of comparison. I'm not like that. Praise the Lord, I'm not like that. And he begins to pursue a course of being justified, basing it upon comparing himself to the tax collector, to whom he, he's very aware of the presence. Of, the tax collector is the third party in his prayer. It's God himself and this terrible sinner who is a tax collector. The tax collector, though, on the other hand, is entirely unaware of the Pharisee. He doesn't even know he's there. You, understand? you see the two. They're both there. They're both praying. 
The Pharisee is very aware of the tax collector. Every, every, he, he's just constantly on the corner of his eye. He's looking at him. Pharisee, or the tax collector, rather, our, our mafia guy, he is completely unaware of anything. The building could burn down. He doesn't notice anything. He's just very aware of his own sinfulness. And he doesn't look up to heaven. He's contrite. He's bowing his head. He knows what kind of person he is. At the heart of his prayer is this, me, a sinner. That's at the heart of his prayer, me, a sinner. He is so keenly aware of his own sin that he knows there's only one way he can be saved. And that is the mercy of God. He has no righteousness that he can parlay into salvation. He can't stand there and say, I'm a pretty good man, you know. I go to church, I tithe, I keep the church calendar, I fast. I don't cheat on my wife, I don't run around, and I don't cheat people. Um, he has none of that. He said, no, I cheat. I cheat on my wife, I cheat other people. That's what I do for a living. I'm always cheating. I, don't, I have no right. I, I can't compare myself to anybody else and come out ahead. Somewhere along the way, he's heard that God is merciful though. And so he's going to roll the dice. He's going to bet everything on the mercy of God. He's saying, if God is merciful, I might have a chance here. If God is not merciful, I don't have a chance. I'm not going to have a chance any other way other than on the mercy of God. I'm betting everything on the mercy of God. And Jesus tells us that it was this miserable, this miserable sack of sin that goes home justified. Not the Pharisee. Look, you can trust God to justify you or you can try to justify yourself, but you can't do both. You can't do both. You can try to justify yourself or you can trust God to justify you, but you can't do both. We should really just forget about trying to accrue righteousness through our own, you know, good behavior and just rely on God's mercy. And that's what the tax collector did. And that's why he's the one that goes home justified. Now, in this parable, there are two sinners. Again, I want to stress this. Frankly, we would, regard, we would say, oh, yes, because theologically, we know they're all sinners. But we really would, sincerely, we would regard the tax collector as a much more grievous sinner. Well, we think, you know, something ought to happen. The guy ought to be really, he should be arrested and put in jail. That's how we would feel about it. We would look at the Pharisee and say, I don't know, maybe at times he's smug, but you know, he's a good neighbor. Good church member. But this is not the difference that matters, at least not to God anyway. The Pharisee was so, here's the difference that matters. I would say it this way. The, they're both sinners, but the Pharisee sinner was proud and obtuse, lacking, totally lacking in self-awareness. The tax collector sinner, though a great sinner, was humble and self-aware. 
Humility involves being honest with yourself about yourself and it taps directly into the grace of God. Humility isn't necessarily having a bad opinion of yourself. Uh, Humility is more like simply daring to be honest with yourself about yourself. And that is what provides access to the grace of God. God gives grace to you when you can be honest with yourself about yourself. The grace of God will be there for you. This is the spiritual genius of the Jesus prayer that is obviously drawn from this parable. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Instead of just God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We, we expand the revelation of God. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's where this, this, this ancient prayer, the Jesus prayer, that's where it comes from. I try to pray that, you know, a couple of hundred times a day. I try that just to keep that. Usually I pray the short version. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. But all this week, because I've been, you know, in this text, in this scripture, all week long, it's been the long version. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Me, a sinner. Me, a sinner. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not comparing myself to anybody else. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Over the years of being a pastor, I have occasionally had people come to me and say to me, Pastor, you need to preach more on sin. And for a long time, I would be defensive, you know. Ah, They don't think I'm preaching like I should, and that irritates me. So I'd become defensive. And I would try to defend myself and have an argument with them, and that doesn't work. And then eventually I began to get wiser, because I understood more what was going on here. So today... Uh, be forewarned, this is what's going to happen if you do this with me. Uh, <laughs> Pastor, you should preach more on sin. I say, you know what? I think you're right. You're probably right. So why don't you tell me your sin and I'll try to preach on it. <laughs> oh, it's fun. Oh, it's fun. They're like, what? that's not what I meant. Yeah, I know. (laughs) What they mean is they want me to preach on someone else's sin. (laughs) What they really mean is they have people they want to beat up and they want me to help them beat them up. But I'm not here for that. I mean, why would you want to hear a sermon on someone else's sin unless that's your meth from which you're getting your illicit high of self-righteousness. I mean, how, how is a sermon on someone else's sin going to help you at all? That isn't what you need. And so uh, all you pastors that are listening to this podcast on Monday, because I know you do, now you know how to handle that situation. You have heard it said, love the sinner and hate the sin. But I say unto you, love everyone and hate your own sin. Hate the sin, love the sinner. That's a little axiom. It's not Bible, but you know, you've all heard it. I get it. I mean, I get it. There, there is something they're reaching for there. 
that is probably has some bit of truth in it. But what I really think is that it's a bad idea to go around hating other people's sins. That's what the Pharisee did. That's, that, that will turn you into a Pharisee. Um, the tax collector was too aware of his own sin to bother with hating other people's sins. This is why Paul could call himself the chief of sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15. Some people will say, you know, the Bible says that Paul was the chief of sinners. I say, well, not exactly. The Bible records Paul as saying, I am the chief of sinners. And that's different. We're not saying objectively from the throne room of God, as God surveys humanity, he says, Saul of Tarsus is the greatest of all sinners. That's not what's being said. Rather, it's, re it's recorded in Scripture that Paul referred to himself as the chief of sinners. Why? Because his own sin is the only sin he knows subjectively. You know, it's one thing to look upon and think, that's terrible sin, but you may not know the whole story. But you know your own story. And your own sin you can feel within you if you have the self-awareness of humility. And so he knows that he's a sinner. He might be able to fool other people, but he knows, he, he honestly knows himself. I'm the, I don't know of a worse sinner than I'm number, I'm the number one sinner. Of course, all that does is open you up to the grace of God. Never compare your own sin or righteousness with other people. That's, that's literally the devil's game. That's literally the devil's game. There's that temptation to kind of, and that's what, that's what the Pharisee's doing. He's looking around, oh, it's a good day in church because I got a real sinner here I can compare myself to. No, he's not, he's not conscious that he's doing that, but he is doing that. So that when we compare our sin or our righteousness with other people, what we're hoping is to find someone that we deem worse than ourselves, and then we can accuse them and make ourselves feel better. This is this illicit high of the meth of self-righteousness. And it does get us high, but it's also destroying our lives. Uh, don't play the devil's game. They're just, you don't need to do that. And you should not do that. Simply be aware of your own sin and say, Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I think for the most part, it's best to view your, your sin Sin in general, but especially your own sin as a disease. That way you can see Jesus as the physician. All this talk about, you know, I'm a sinner. You'll get some pushback. So, yeah, but the Bible says we're saints. Yeah, yeah, that too. But I like to acknowledge that I'm a sinner because at least I have a diagnosis. If all I ever say about myself is I'm a saint, I'm a saint, I'm a saint, I'm a saint then I have to, I have a hard time explaining certain aspects of my life. But when I say, well, I'm also a sinner, well, that explains a lot. All right, we have a diagnosis. And then you can go to Jesus as the great physician. Remember, Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes and other disreputable sinners just simply because Jesus will hang out with anybody that will hang out with him. And when he's criticized for it, his defense was, look, I'm not saying they're right. I'm saying they're sick. And it's the sick who need a physician, not the well. 
your will. So you think, so you say, fine, you don't need me. These people are sick, they need me. It's better to think, of, you, you, need, you need a doctor more than you need a lawyer. You wouldn't go to the doctor to complain about the ill health of other people. You know, the doctor says, well, tell me what's wrong. Well, my neighbor, he's got the gout in the worst way and you just go on and on and on about it. It's, that doesn't make any sense. So when you come, bring your own sin to Dr. Jesus and just, and just pray Jesus, I'm a great sinner and I'm very sick. Please help me get well. And Jesus says, oh, I'm on the case. That's what I do. You've come to the right person. Jesus, I'm a great sinner. I'm very sick. Help me get well. Or you could just say it this way. Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Amen. Why don't you stand with me? I think we ought to pray that a little bit, though. Why don't I just take a moment and pray that way? I haven't prepared how we're going to pray this. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We're praying it together, I think. But let's not say us, because that me. Lord, we can all just pray that. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Yes, Lord, we come before you. We've heard that you're a great physician. Well, we're great sinners. And we're sick in our sin and sick of our sin. At times we just want just, to just say, oh, I'm the chief of sinners. We know our own pride or whatever it is. We know this. And so Jesus, we come to you and say, All right, we, can't, we can't shake it. We can't, we can't get over this. We can't heal ourselves. Jesus, heal us. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. Have mercy on me, a sinner. You're justified. That is, you're set right with God. You're still, still a journey. Oh, you're saying, but you know, hold on, Pastor. Shouldn't, shouldn't the mafioso tax collector at some point change his life? Well, that's, that's next Sunday. That's next Sunday. We're going to meet Zacchaeus next Sunday. We'll talk about that next. That's next Sunday. All I want you to know this Sunday is when you just block out everybody else and say, I'm the sinner here and I need mercy, it comes to you. Not only as forgiveness, but as the beginning of the healing of your soul so you don't have to stay that way. All right, and now we're going to come to the table of grace and receive communion and let's prepare our hearts by first, yes, confessing our faith and then one more time, confessing our sin. Confess with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate 
was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now let's confess our sins and receive the Lord's pardon. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And it's true. God really is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. So I tell you this, in the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. You can go home justified. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Amen.